Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from Delta EE, the new energy experts. We'll be talking about how the energy transition is developing across Europe, with guests who are working at the leading edge of this transition. Hello, and welcome to the episode. Today, we'll be looking at uh, the fossil fuel sector, which might sound a bit old energy, but uh, fossil fuels still do dominate energy globally. Uh, even if renewables are on the rise, uh, fossil fuels still dominate. And we'll look at how the fossil fuel value chain is evolving and how the fossil fuel sector is evolving in the energy transition. I'm joined today by uh, one guest, by uh, Chris Goodall, who some of you may know as a uh, popular science author. Some of you may have read Chris's books or seen his books on bookshelves. Hello, Chris, and welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much indeed. Hello. Um, Chris, for the benefit of our listeners that might not have read your books or or seen them on the the bookshelves, uh, can you just give a very quick background of uh, your time in the energy sector and the perspectives that you have on it? Yes, I've been writing books on the energy transition in one form or another for about 12 years. Um, I've written five books. The most recent one, which came out in February, is entitled What We Need to Do Now, which is an outline plan for complete decarbonisation of the UK economy within about 20 years. It's uh, an attempt to get people enthused with the idea that this might be a possible and beneficial change. Um, And I hope I write like this always. I try to give people a sense that there are alternatives. We can do things differently. We are not absolutely tied to the fossil fuel economy. And as well as writing uh, for the last 12 years or so, you've you've got other activities around investing from time to time, around advising, and uh, way back as a a consultant and an equity uh, analyst on equity research. Yes, what what I do now um, ranges from being a director of uh, new energy startups. Um, until this time last year, for example, I was chair of one of the UK's fastest growing car charging installation companies, which was sold to the French multinational Angie in June of 2019. I'm an investor in companies such as Oxwash, which is um, it calls itself space age washing. It's very low energy net zero uh, uh, laundries for both commercial and domestic use. Um, Switchy, which many of your uh, listeners will probably know about, which does smart thermostats predominantly for the social housing sector. Mm-hmm. And I've been looking at making investment in something called GridDuck, which is a form of very highly decentralized, cheap, smart demand management, particularly for small enterprises. So that's, that's the kind of thing I get interested in. Okay. Um... Now, there's lots we could talk about, but as I said in my introduction, let's uh, focus on the the fossil fuel sector today. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that they may be part of the problem today, and there are growing movements and trends to, to divest fossil fuel investments for some particularly green investors, but they're uh, almost certainly very much part of the answer as well, and some of them are, are quite progressive in their engagement and activity and investment in the energy transition. Um, but it's not only the what we might think of as the traditional fossil fuel companies, it, it's a whole fossil fuel value chain. So Chris, how, how should we think about that 
that fossil fuel value chain, I guess, from extraction all the way down to utilization. Can you sort of add a bit of color to or examples of companies in that sector? That, of course, is an utterly huge question um, involving <laughs> a large amount of supply. I'm just going to dive in uh, for, for make one point to begin with and then perhaps restart again. Um, yeah. And that is that the energy transition, in my view, is utterly impossible without the active participation of the large oil and gas companies. Uh, it's them that have the capital, it's them that have the expertise and the ability to, to manage billion dollar, billion pound projects successfully. The energy transition is going to require the likes of Shell and BP to move away from oil and gas exploitation to seeing their future probably predominantly in offshore wind plus conversion of offshore wind through electrolysis into hydrogen with hydrogen providing them with the key ingredients for the maintenance of their existing petrochemical businesses um, on however uh, a zero carbon and near zero carbon basis. Chris I'm really want to explore that point about the uh, oil companies and or fossil fuel companies being part of the future. Before we do that, let's just look at the value chain and if you can characterize how you see that at a high level from uh, from extraction through to utilization or give us a few examples of uh, how you see that value chain and companies in it. When we say value chain, we mean the, the, the variety of activities that an oil and gas company gets involved in right through from initial appraisal through to exploration and then right down to the production of petrochemicals at the end. Is, is, when, when we say value chain, that's what we're, what we're meaning, is it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so, you know, you might look all the way at a company like um, a General Electric and their gas turbine business for... Uh, combined cycle uh, gas turbine power plants uh, being in that value chain. Uh, so yeah, so I guess it's a huge enormous right. value okay. chain. Uh, uh, okay, in, indeed. Well, um, I, I think one of the fundamental things is not a direct answer to your question, but one of the fundamental things is that for the majority of existing large oil companies, particularly the national oil companies, not that the publicly traded international ones, but the national oil companies, they're controlling assets where the cost of extraction is $10 or so uh, per barrel of oil, and yep. significantly less than that energy equivalent terms for gas. So um, they're running down existing proven reserves is something that they, they can do. There is no threat to the long-term financial solvency of um, the major oil companies, particularly the national ones, um, because they've got access to this very low cost resource. That doesn't mean to say that they're ever going to explore for more, uh, that's a different matter. But the fact is that a company like Shell could dissolve itself, could liquidate itself from its existing oil and gas activities within the space of about 12 years as it runs down existing proven resources. And during that time, a lot of free cash flow comes, becomes available from the exploitation, even at relatively low prices of oil, but probably not at today's prices. Um, and they can use that um, to give money back to shareholders or, I hope, decide to exploit new uh, energy opportunities with the large amounts of cash that come off, that flow off the exploitation of already discovered oil and gas resources. Okay, so, so that's the even... first point. 
so just on that one, even if the, the there's huge growth and continued growth in in wind, in photovoltaics, in electric vehicles, these companies are still going to have they're going to be very cash generative. Um, they might watch these other sectors grow. Yeah. They can choose whether to get involved in them, but they're still going to be quite happy uh, extracting oil and gas, as you've described. Uh, unless the price of those resources falls even further, they are quite happy. They, they can survive. I'm not saying they're going to be yeah. happy. They can yep. survive by um, just simply running down their resources and not exploring for more. And that has yep. to be one of the things that we encourage these companies to do, is to yep. say, right, you've got approximately 10, 12 years of resources in the ground. Why don't we all agree you don't go out and exploit, exploit some more? All the cash flow that you can get out of that, you either give back to your shareholders, or ideally, you use it to exploit um, zero carbon opportunities, uh, yep. which are larger and larger uh, in yep. the world around you. But then if you look a step down the value chain at gas turbines, for example, or mm. companies in the automotive value chain, then that's a bit trickier mm -hmm. for them as things starts to change. Right. They, they can't, yeah. Okay. No, the big, yes, indeed, absolutely. The big problems arise in the, in the industrial sectors where demand is dependent upon the continued existence and growth of uh, oil or other sectors. So you mentioned gas turbines. Mm. In a world where people decide that making electricity using gas turbines is no longer, they don't longer want to invest in it, then the manufacturing of gas turbines dries up very quickly. It's very highly leveraged to the growth of the industry, not its existing state. And that's mm. a very important point. There are large numbers of capital equipment suppliers in the world, whether it be machines for making gearboxes uh, for cars, whose entire business is dependent upon the, their supply, their customers, in this case, the automotive OEMs, deciding to expand. But we're probably actually already at, even if it weren't for the virus, we're probably at very close to the peak of um, fossil fuel-based car sales. We may, of course, be at the peak of um, oil consumption as well. But all this means that people who are reliant upon growth, largely the capital equipment suppliers who equip new factories, their future is very, very weak indeed, very poor. And do you see them struggling already, or have you got examples to, to illustrate how some are struggling already with that? Well, there's, there's lots of examples out of, out of gas turbines. You mentioned that several times. And the, the crash in the gas turbine market two and a half, three years ago was cataclysmic for the three major suppliers into that industry, Siemens, GE, to a lesser extent, that Mitsubishi. Um, they continue to believe until the, the middle of, um, what was it, 2018 or 17, forgive me, that the market would continue to be stable and they were producing forecasts which suggested that they, it might be a small diminution but then there'd be a recovery. And all of a sudden everybody realised that the growth of the gas turbine market for new power stations was falling away virtually to nothing as all of a sudden it became obvious that in most parts of the world, renewable electricity could provide cheaper electricity than that generated by natural gas. 
So is it is it We're too strong to describe them as, as Kodak moments, Chris? I mean, I guess it's yeah. potentially going to be less of a sudden shock than a Kodak moment, but in some some cases it might be. But for some participants, some industries, there will be already happy Kodak moments. We should probably explain to your listeners um, just what that meant. Kodak denied for a long time that cameras were digitalizing. The era of the paper, the paper film was going to disappear uh, alongside other people like Agfa, a name that's almost disappeared now. Whereas one participant in the conventional camera industry, Fuji, realized what was going to happen, made the painful transition and now prospers in the digital world. Um, the Kodak pretty much went, well, bankrupt very quickly yeah. after the downturn began. Nobody predicted the speed of a downturn. The same thing is going to happen in sector after sector. Yeah. Okay, so it's going to be a difficult place to be if you're uh, in that capital capital goods market in the oil and gas value chain. If we come back to the yeah the oil and gas companies themselves and you you said earlier that they're you know they have to be part of the solution in your view are any to what degree are are any of them would you say setting out that that vision or doing more than warm words to try and position themselves as as greener than they might otherwise be seen well look they're, they're treading gingerly in a sort of dance um, they're all moving in the same direction, but I think all of them are worried that they might go too fast and be perceived by the stock market as being dangerously exposed to industries they don't know much about. So every single announcement we get from the oil companies is a move, often quite small and insignificant, but it is a move towards uh, a no oil, no gas future. The companies that have made the transition entirely or nearly such as what's now called Orsted, Walls, Danish Oil and Natural Gas, have of yep. course performed very much better. And uh, you only have to look at the stock price charts of Orsted versus, say, Exxon to realize what a disaster continuing to put 100% of your assets into oil and gas has been for the large oil companies. But most of them have a very short-term time horizon. They can't face difficulties making plans for investments that will take 10, 15 years to get real, to realize the returns, for example, the gigawatt scale offshore wind. Is that, so, I mean, they're all edging that is, in the right. How much of that time scale challenges do you think they're doing, or how much of that is just the way the the markets work and people that did your old job as an equity equity analyst uh, look at these companies? Um, I'm afraid to say that the, the financial sector is all in this together. It's all about exploiting um, the, what they know now to be the temporary value of uh, existing uh, fuel companies and to do so as fast as possible. So it's, um, it's not a great reflection on humanity. We've got some companies that are beginning to move faster than others. Best example is probably Repsol in Spain, a significant oil and gas producer. But last week, Total of France said that it was going to put a much higher fraction of its total investments into renewables than it had indicated before. But on the other hand, it's still only 25% projected by 2030. We cannot continue on this road. 
if they don't switch out of oil and gas by 2030, they're probably going to be on the route to, to, um, to complete liquidation, but also they've added too much carbon to the atmosphere by the end of their uh, next investment cycle for 1.5 degrees or anything like it to be possible. So what do you think differentiates then the, the Orsteds, uh, Repsols, Total with their announcement last week from some of them that have been um, been less progressive and I think of Exxon as one example maybe that's not fair I'm not sure um, is it is it mindset is it shareholder pressure is it vision is it an easier starting point yeah look, it's all I think it's all of those things you know in the past talk to people privately in, who worked for the oil companies and they said ah well the problem with renewable energy the problem with the shift is we have 20 billion dollars a year to invest. Uh, renewables just doesn't provide us with the scale of investment we need, yeah. the, the rate of return. So to begin with, there was just an assumption that the, the other industry was just too worried about. And it's absolutely traditional. It's always happened this way. Um, exponential growth, as we, I think, are beginning to understand partly as a result of the virus, exponential growth looks as though it's moving very slowly to begin with but then speeds up to an extent that humankind finds very difficult to understand we mm. humans cannot cannot Im imagine the true impact but, well, we're, we're linear but thinkers then, rather than exponential thinkers typically we're, we're linear thinkers at best with a very <laughs> short-term curtain in front of us through which yeah. we cannot see um, now, uh, so, so that's one big problem. The second big problem, uh, once again, this is talking to middle ranking people in oil and gas companies, is the people at the top are rewarded disproportionately well for um, short term performance. They may only be there for a few years. They want options to be as valuable as they can. So there's an institutional problem here that um, the top 30 people are in an oil and gas company are so well rewarded and know that um, they can make enough money to live off the rest of their life if they continue down this um, planetary destruction route and it's difficult to stop them uh, and they're the people who make the big decisions okay but then you look at a company like let's pick up someone like shell who you know in your your ballpark 20 billion dollars a year investment um they've they have been investing actively in new energy, uh, you know, one or two billion a year, if I remember right. So you could say that's that's small beer. That's not very much compared to their their old business, their fossil fuel business. But maybe it's as fast as the market will allow them to do that, and uh, as their shareholders will allow them to do that. Or do you think they companies like Shell could go quicker? I think they could go quicker, actually. Um, but it requires a taking of risks, a, a kind of risk which they're not really well equipped to do. But they're beginning to move into hydrogen, they're beginning to move into offshore wind, the supply of electricity um, in, in several countries now, and so on and so forth. But as you say, the numbers are still quite small. The, the, the bets are not bets on the company anymore. Sorry, they're not bets on the company. That is to say, even all of them go wrong. Actually, mm. earnings per share doesn't don't change very much. Yeah, they have to get themselves in a position where they are actually taking 
capital investment decisions, which potentially, um, if they went wrong, that could threaten the future of the company. Com large institu uh, institutionally owned big companies do not take that sort of decision very frequently. And indeed, they don't take it very easily. Those non-executive directors sitting at the top of their companies, uh, often in their 60s with no real knowledge of what's going on in the outside world in renewable energy, are simply not capable of pushing companies, pushing managers into the right direction. I guess unless those directions and steps are very easy and obvious steps to take, but then they're low risk and then you're probably a bit late if they're that low risk. Um, the, yeah, so it may not happen. Um, and the offshore wind um, is an interesting sort of example. If you think of uh, the North Sea, um, those of our listeners that aren't aware, there's growing amounts of offshore wind in the North Sea and huge potential for for more. And the, the profile of that type of investment in many ways should be quite comfortable for an oil a company or oil and gas company. So you mentioned yes. that earlier, Chris. Have you been have you been thinking much about the potential there and how well suited the oil majors are for that sector and how they well, they're growing activity in that sector? Yeah, what what I'd I'd, I'd I'd like to say is really the the first few chapters of my book, which is that. If we do make a 100% switch to renewables, we will probably end up trying to produce far more electricity than we need in order to not have periods of intermittent lack of electricity supply. Now that means that the, the surplus electricity that's generated most of the time, perhaps 95% of the time, needs to be turned into something else. It can't be put into batteries because um, it can be put into batteries, but it would be unfortunately extraordinarily expensive on the kind of seasonal scale we need here. So what I want them to get interested in is turning uh, renewable energy, predominantly from offshore wind, into hydrogen. First, to power their own refineries, and both Shell and Philips, uh, I think Petroleum in Illingham of the northeast coast of the, the UK, have decided to make moves towards the use of hydrogen generated from uh, electricity from offshore wind. And um, why that's important is that these, these refineries already use a lot of hydrogen. There's less risk involved in doing this than moving whole scale into a, a wholesale into a new uh, a new world where you don't quite know how the energy how the hydrogen is going to be exploited. But uh, so that's an important first step for the oil majors to begin, particularly the ones that want run refineries, to begin to take. Okay, and that, as you say, it's an easier step. It manages their risk. It potentially gives them some competitive advantage, depending on the the economics of that of of hydrogen. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Indeed. Indeed. I mean, all this is is predicated upon the wholesale price of gas rising from its extremely low levels at the moment. I think that's going to happen simply because at these prices, it's not economic to produce gas in places like the shale zones of the United States. Um, yeah. But that's going to take time to shake out the um, uneconomic producers and for gas to return to a normal, a normal level uh, in wholesale markets around the world. Um, 
when it does, hydrogen is going to be competitive as the source of energy, both for conversion into petrochemicals and indeed for direct burning. Hmm. Okay, so you've talked about a, a way for the, the oil majors or oil and gas majors to diversify in a place like the North Sea. Um, for those that are in the in the transport or power generation value chains, the examples you talked about earlier, the gearbox manufacturers to the gas turbine manufacturers. Mm. Uh, do you see any good examples? Well, we talked about that's potentially a much, much riskier or harder place to be if the growth starts to disappear from the oil and gas yeah, sector or, yeah. or there's less growth. Yeah. Um, well, it's a lot harder for them, isn't it, to, to, to diversify? Those are big steps and they have I, to potentially move more quickly. It is. It is. And if you look at the um, car industry OEMs, the, the manufacturing companies, the brands which we know, most of them are trying to hedge the move into electricity as the motive force um, by developing cars which can either operate with diesel or petrol or hybrid or fully battery versions. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the way they're covering their bet there. My guess, for what it's worth, looking at the economics as far as one can from the outside, is that that's the wrong model. You actually do need to begin to separately develop a completely distinct um, electric and electric-only offering. And of course, the best example of this actually taking that strategy, strategic route is Volkswagen, uh, trying to move into electric-only factories, battery production in large scale, and so on and so forth. That seems to me to be the way out. Whereas if you continue to try and hedge your bets on different motive forces, whether it be diesel or electricity, you're going to end up with a much higher cost structure and a much less flexible company. And if you set up an independent segment to run electricity and deliberately run the old segments down. Yeah, we talked about Kodak before. Another, uh, another saying which I really like is, well, everyone will have seen hockey uh, hockey stick shaped curves where you've got these inflection moments when markets really transition and a lot of firms and startups uh, bet on those uh, hockey stick shaped curves and bet on when that inflection moment will happen um, the saying i really like is that those uh, inflection points normally happen later than people think but when they happen they happen much more quickly and more steeply than people think um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's hard to manage that through this sort of hedging strategy. I think um, you've yeah. got to be in the market when those yeah. inflection points happen, and be right in the market when they when they happen. Yeah. Okay. So most large companies want to wait to act until they can actually see the inflection point, rather than predicting it anyway. The problem yeah. is, by that stage, it's certainly too late. Yeah. But no chief executive. Which is to be exposed to being too early. That's the board brand problem. Thinking yeah. that be, could be moved to oil and gas probably 10 years too early. And, and uh, he's done very well since then, but you know, he wasn't. So, Chris, if you look at someone like a company like Orsted who have moved relatively quickly, was that just down to their circumstance? that it was easier for them to move quickly? Or is that when you look at a company like Orsted, you think, wow, great leadership, great foresight, great decision-making, 
And is that a real a real case study that shines out to you? Well, it, it definite, definitely is. It partly comes from the ownership structure. I think I'm right saying it's partly owned by the Danish state. Mm -hmm. um, I really should know that for not knowing that. Um, it also had assets that were uh, quite expensive in terms of exploiting uh, yeah. in oil and gas. It wasn't the best positioned company in that field. And it did see that there was massive opportunity in the offshore wind segment and that by investing heavily in it, it would be able to build a business in the UK and uh, other parts of Europe, North Sea, which was untouchable. And I guess the fact that, lots of... yeah, and the fact that Denmark has, hmm? was a, a early mover and leader in wind made it potentially when, uh, a better understandable yeah. and less risky decision for them. So maybe a nice yes. set of circumstances behind that. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Indeed. Chris, I want to finish now by looking forward. We we uh, normally get the the talking new energy crystal ball out, so I've got it in front of me here. Um, if we look forward to, let's pick um, let's pick five years time because that's close enough to be uh, near term and uh, focus our minds. Where do you think the the fossil fuel incumbents? Let's focus on the oil and gas majors. Where will they be in five years? How many will have sort of do you think really changed the emphasis in their business or in their investments or in their future? Mm -hmm. Gosh, I wish I could be optimistic about this. Um, I think they're trying to deny it at the moment. They don't really mean what they're saying because they can't see that burning hockey stick that you mentioned. Five years. I still think they'll be talking about devoting the majority of their capital expenditure to conventional oil and gas by that stage. Could yeah. be wrong, perhaps I'm being too pessimistic, but they're not moving anywhere near fast enough. And maybe I was going to say, if we set the crystal wall to 10 years, what would you see? But a different way to ask that question, maybe. How long do you think it will take? Well, about 10 years would have been my answer, actually. Right. Because by that stage, in all probability, in my view, oil and natural gas demand will be falling at a rate it means that there's no point in engaging in any further exploration. So they've got nothing to do. They, they can pull some barrels out of the ground, but most of their staff haven't got a job anymore because it's a very simple and uncomplicated world they're living in. So, so by that stage, they will have checked. But that will be more because they've had to and they've been pushed into it rather than they've had the, the foresight or ability to, to move because, ahead of the market. Yes, indeed. I, yeah. I, I don't see any evidence that the majority of the largest oil companies really have made any decisions about moving into renewables. Everything that's been done so far is an attempt to hedge. There's yeah. no betting going on here. It's simply an attempt yeah. to look okay to avoid the worst problems with who are getting clearly increasingly worried by the month, uh, but yeah. no commitment to trying to work out how they could turn that huge organization away from oil and gas. No, no, well, no, I've seen none of that so at all. I guess everything starts. starts yeah. Everything yeah. starts small. Yeah, everything starts small, everything starts somewhere. 
and I guess only time will tell whether uh, it's five years, 10 years, 15 years, or, or how quickly that, that investment moves uh, towards more sustainable, uh, cleaner, greener forms of energy. Yeah, if it is 10 years, we're in a mess. So let's try and make it happen faster. Well, I think we share the same uh, the same desires, Chris, and we're both working in the energy sector to try and help this to happen as quickly and effectively as it can. Um, so plenty for us to do, uh, plenty for all of our listeners to uh, to do as well, because we're I know that most of you are active in the sector and share the same sort of thinking as Chris and myself. Chris, thanks for taking the time uh, to talk with me uh, today and share your thoughts. I thought it was a fascinating discussion. And thank, thank you very much. Um, and thanks as always to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed the episode and look forward to welcoming you back next week to the next episode of Talking New Energy. Thanks very much and goodbye. If you're as passionate about the energy transition as we are, then please keep in touch. You can follow us and me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or subscribe to the podcasts on your chosen podcast platform. If you like the podcasts and like sharing, then please do rate us. And to listen to archived episodes, to read transcripts, and to see the latest Delta EE insights, then please visit www.delta-ee.com.